I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. On a chilly morning in 1864, 64-year-old Mary Tucker Borrodale slid into a warm bath at Madame Rachel's Arabian bathhouse. The bubbles popped as she moved through the water, little bursts of perfume filling the air. She was alone, as far as anyone else could tell. But Mary knew that wasn't actually the case. Behind the tiled walls of the bath, her beloved admirer peered through a peephole in the wall. She tried to look elegant and graceful as she bathed, putting on a show. But in truth, the space on the other side of the wall was empty. There was no sweetheart gazing at her with desire. The only person watching Mary was Madame Rachel, world-famous beautician and low-class crook. Madame Rachel had fabricated the entire story. The admirer, the betrothal, the pending wedding, all as a means to drain Mary Tucker Borrodale of her life's savings. She watched Mary move through the bathing pool, a wicked smile curling across her face. The elderly widow was a sitting duck. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm your host, Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Last week, we saw the birth of Victorian con artist and snake oil saleswoman, Madame Rachel. Born Sarah Rachel Russell, Madame Rachel conned her way into high society by selling expensive, bogus cosmetics to London's elite. This week, we'll learn how one of Madame Rachel's wealthiest victims exposed the con woman as a fraud. But ever the leech, she simply found new ways to bleed her victims dry. In the 1860s, New Bond Street was a busy boulevard in London's West End. The street was lined with boutiques and shops, places where the wealthy could unload a few shillings. The loveliest of these shops sat at number 47A, a little enclave practically the size of a matchbox. It smelled of heavy, exotic perfumes, oud and jasmine and incense. The walls of the store were laden with serums and tonics, dainty glass bottles and soaps so bright they looked like macarons. The shop belonged to Madame Rachel, a woman as mysterious as she was beautiful. And she promised to make her clients just as lovely, ageless even. Like a witch who bathes in the blood of children, Madame Rachel's clients douse themselves in her tonics, desperate to stay young. By 1864, 50-year-old Madame Rachel was not only famous citywide, but the world over. Women sailed across the Atlantic to seek her treatments, paying exorbitant sums for her precious elixirs. However, this had to be done in secret, as cosmetics had been made shameful and taboo by reigning Queen Victoria. Makeup was reserved for actors and sex workers. No proprietor's woman would ever be caught dead using them. Which made it all the easier for Madame Rachel to extort her customers. She blackmailed them into paying off false tabs, threatening to expose their cosmetic habits to their husbands and suitors. She could ruin their reputations at the drop of a hat, or worse, cut off their access to her products. Of course, most of Madame Rachel's products were fake, a hodgepodge of perfume and chemicals that did little more than a placebo. But that didn't stop the women of London from flocking to her. Madame Rachel pushed her clients to the brink of financial ruin and even death as she sold them bottle after bottle of arsenic lace tonic, some were sent to an early grave. But no one suffered more from Rachel's swindling than 64-year-old Mary Tucker Borrodale. In late 1864, Madame Rachel convinced Mary, an elderly widow, that a wealthy admirer named Lord Ranella was seeking her hand in marriage. She suspected that throwing a sweetheart in the mix would persuade Mary to invest more money than ever into her cosmetic potions. And of course, Mary never suspected that Lord Ranella 
was as phony as the Madame's serums. As she stood in Madame Rachel's shop, reeling from the news of Ranella's affections, Mary could do little more than stare in disbelief. She inhaled the heavy perfumes hanging in the air, wondering if it was the scent or her emotions that were making her dizzy. An aristocratic lord, interested in her. It couldn't be. She was old and wrinkled. Certainly a wealthy lord would have many younger, more beautiful options. But Madame Rachel held firm. Lord Ranella had been admiring her from afar, in secret. Surely, Madame Rachel insisted, Mary must know of Lord Ranella. Mary admitted she didn't. They didn't run in the same circles. Well, Madame Rachel continued, the point was, he was very rich and very handsome and very interested to meet Mary in person which, of course, posed a problem. After all, wrinkles are less noticeable at a distance, but up close, the deep crevices that sprawled across Mary's forehead might give the handsome Lord pause. Mary felt her throat begin to close. Love seemed so close, she couldn't let it slip through her grasp. Madame Rachel understood her predicament. She was always so understanding in times like these. Mary was a beautiful woman, but age had robbed her of her girlish charms. According to journalist Colin Barris with the BBC, Madame Rachel used two common manipulation tactics to win over Mary's trust. First, she presented herself as an authority figure, someone who could help Mary and guide her someone who knew more about the problem at hand than she did and could always provide a brilliant solution. Second, she pressured Mary to act quickly, insisting that time was of the essence. There wasn't a moment to spare mulling over the proposition. Lord Ranella would like to meet her soon. And Mary, it seemed, was primed to fall in line. Not only was she elderly and vulnerable, reeling from the death of her husband, she also had an inherent trust in authority figures, a characteristic which Colin Barris identified as one of the most prevalent traits in scam victims. Madame Rachel dutifully provided a solution to Mary's problem, a beauty treatment. It was difficult and expensive, but guaranteed to work. Mary braced herself for the price. One thousand pounds. Nearly $115,000 today. More than a fifth of her net worth. The number hit Mary square in the jaw. One thousand pounds. But Madame Rachel assured her it was a small price to pay for a wealthy new husband who would take care of all of her expenses. But Mary shook her head. No, the price was simply too much. There was no way she could afford the treatment. As Mary hemmed and hawed over the cost, Madame Rachel's gaze drifted to a stout, finely dressed man standing just outside her window. 
His eyes leered at her from beneath a stately hat. Rachel gulped and turned her attention back to Mary, who still wasn't convinced. Anxious to wrap up the conversation, Rachel made her a deal. Mary wouldn't need to spend a penny on the expensive treatment before laying eyes on Lord Ranelagh. If she liked what she saw, then they'd begin the process of beautifying her for her bridegroom. Satisfied, Mary left the shop and Madame Rachel locked the door behind her. She switched the sign on her door to read, closed, and moved to the back room to avoid the incessant knocking from the finely dressed man outside. She knew this gentleman all too well. He was a debt collector, and he'd had Rachel's number for quite some time. See, Rachel had been running ads in every high-end magazine and newspaper in London. The Times, the Court Journals, Deborah's Peerage, even the theatre newspaper, The Era. All of that advertising racked up quite the debt, and Rachel wasn't in a position to pay. After all, she was a businesswoman. She hounded her clients for their money, not the other way around. But the harassment from local debtors was getting a little intense. Perhaps it was time to start chipping away at that exorbitant tab. Rachel exited the back of the shop and made her way to her Arabian bathhouse across the street. Inside, she smiled cordially as she walked by women luxuriating in the warm, oil-perfumed baths. She held her smile until she turned a corner into the back of the spa. There, her mystique vanished, replaced by a hardened exterior. Her mouth curled with contempt. Her heels clicked along the narrow stretch of hallway that lined the edge of the baths. Finally, she found just the gentleman she'd been looking for. Lord Ranela, the groom-to-be. Or rather, the man who would soon be playing him. He was crouched against the wall, looking at the naked bathers through a small peephole, the Judas hole, that Rachel had carved into the tile. Historians disagree about whether Lord Ranelagh was a phony with a compelling backstory or if he was the black sheep of an otherwise affluent family. But one thing was for certain. He was a well-paying peeping Tom. Most believe the man's name truly was Lord Ranelagh, but that he was a lord only by title and was otherwise flat broke. And indeed, he'd racked up sizable debt. Most people who knew Ranelagh were keen on finding him for repayment as he seemed to owe money to half of London. But despite his numerous shortcomings, the faux lord was handsome, and the rest, Rachel decided, could be manufactured. Rachel pulled Lord Ranelagh up from the Judas Hole and offered him an enticing deal. Help her extort the widow Mary Borrodale or else she would reveal his peeping habit to the women in the other room and maybe even his aristocratic family. Finally, he shrugged. Good enough for the fallen lord. They had a deal.
In a moment, Rachel worms her way into a royal pocketbook. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. By late 1864, 50-year-old Madame Rachel was in a bind with debt collectors. She needed a great sum of money and had little time to accrue it. She planned to bleed the widow Mary Tucker Borrowdale dry over the course of years but in the short term, she needed cash. And luckily for her, she knew just how to get it. Some would have considered it bold when Madame Rachel appeared at her client Georgiana's residence, and Georgiana considered it to be certain death to her reputation. After all, everyone knew Madame Rachel. Georgiana couldn't be seen with someone who sold makeup. It would start terrible rumors. She quickly ushered the beautician off her doorstep and into her home, hoping nobody had seen. Georgiana, Countess of Dudley, had no time for pleasantries. She was perturbed that Madame Rachel had called on her at all, let alone so late at night. What could she possibly want? Rachel smiled coyly and handed her an exorbitant bill a record of a line of credit Georgiana had taken at Madame Rachel's shop. The Countess read through the document and scoffed. Half of the charges weren't hers, and even if they were, she hardly had the money to pay. Rachel shrugged. That was fine. Perhaps, she suggested, Georgiana's husband could lend her a few quid. Georgiana stopped Rachel in her tracks. If there was one thing the Count of Dudley would find unforgivable, it was wasting his family's money on scandalous cosmetics. The Countess could feel her blood begin to boil. She reconciled with the fact that she had willingly entered this dance with the devil, and now it was time to pay up. Georgiana ushered Rachel to a room off the hallway and locked the door behind her. She offered to give Rachel her jewellery, more than enough to cover the charges. Then she'd come up with some story to tell her husband, that her jewels had been stolen perhaps. A robber had broken into the house and ransacked her jewellery box. It wasn't the most foolproof plan Rachel had ever heard of, but it would probably work. After all, Georgiana was royalty. Robbing the jewels of someone of her standing wouldn't be far-fetched. Plus, the newspapers would be happy to have her name in print. Minutes later, Madame Rachel walked out of the royal residence with a bag of jewels, the coy smile returning to her face. It would be days before the stage theft hit the papers, which was just enough time for Rachel to pawn the gems and track down Lord Ranelagh. She outfitted the fallen lord in fine attire, not exactly the emperor's new clothes, but it would do the trick. And finally, as they left the Arabian baths, 
Madame Rachel pointed out the sweet elderly Mary, his supposed bride-to-be. Tomorrow, they'd go through with the introduction. Lord Ranelagh scrunched his nose at the sight of her. The things he did for a payday. The next day, 64-year-old Mary Borrowdale entered the shop at 47A Bond Street when Madame Rachel grabbed her by the arm and ushered her to the corner. Lord Ranella, she told Mary, was in the shop chatting with Madame Rachel's daughter. Then, without missing a beat, Madame Rachel ushered a blushing Mary over to a tall, handsome man dressed in a fine suit. He grabbed Mary's hand and kissed it, brushing off Madame Rachel's teenage daughter. He smiled and pulled the widow aside. He admitted he'd been admiring her from afar. Mary looked the man up and down and raised an eyebrow. No, she said. There was no way this was Lord Ranella. But the dashing man pulled a small business card out of his pocket and handed it over as proof. There was his name in typed script, Lord Ranella. It was so newly minted that most would see it for what it was, a prop. But Mary wasn't a discerning audience. She clutched the card to her chest, convinced the young man before her was an honest suitor. Madame Rachel watched at a short distance as Lord Ranella romanced the elderly woman. He kissed her hand, and Rachel could swear Mary's knees buckled. She was falling for the Lord head over heels, just as Rachel had predicted. And sadly for Mary, this made her incredibly vulnerable to a con. Author and con artist expert Maria Konnikova writes, People who are going through times of extreme life change are very vulnerable to con artists because you lose your equilibrium. Positive changes also make you vulnerable. You start being more credulous of good things in general. Mary, who had recently lost her husband of many years, was dumbstruck to find that a member of the aristocracy was interested in her. She was grappling for stability and open to flattery, which made it even easier for Lord Ranella and Madame Rachel to trick her. Before they parted, Lord Ranella explained the situation. He would love to wed Mary, the most beautiful sexagenarian he'd ever laid eyes on. But the circumstances were complicated. His family, being members of the royal bloodline, were less than thrilled with his decision to pursue a commoner. This Mary understood, but there was little she could do about it. Lord Ranella shook his head. What she could do, he suggested, was see Madame Rachel for treatment and become the most beautiful possible version of herself. She was already lovely enough for him, but it would take some convincing to win over his scrupulous relatives. When the time was right, he would introduce her as his bride-to-be and his family would be so overcome by her beauty they would have no choice but to bless the union. 
after some thought, Mary agreed. She wondered if Lord Ranelagh could help pay for the treatments, but he politely declined. His family wouldn't approve of him funneling money into a beauty routine. However, once they were wed, he promised he'd shower her with riches. She wouldn't need a penny of her own once they were together. Mary smiled. It all made terrific sense. She asked when she could see her beloved Lord again. But Ranala simply gave her a coy smile and kissed her hand before leaving the shop. As he ducked out the door, he called out vague promises to write. Mary was overjoyed. The Lord was far more handsome than she'd expected, and such a charmer. She couldn't hand over the £1,000 fast enough. However, there was only one problem. Her money was tied up in stocks and bonds. But this was no matter to Madame Rachel. The next day, the beautician introduced Mary to Mr. Haynes, a stockbroker who lived on St. James Street. He helped the widow sell 1,460 pounds of stock, most of which was handed over to Madame Rachel immediately. And with that, Operation Impress the In-Laws began. Madame Rachel led Mary to the back of the shop and sat her down in a chair. It was going to take work, but she could restore Mary's former beauty with enough time and, of course, money. Madame Rachel started by scrubbing Mary's skin until it glowed, probably with thousands of microderm abrasions. Then she began the enameling treatment, a process wherein Mary's skin was coated with lead-based paint until she was ghostly white. Porcelain skin was the height of beauty at the time, and lead-based paints and skin-whitening arsenic were both popular ways to achieve that particular look. According to history writer Natalie Zarelli, women of Victorian England commonly used arsenic in skin washes, paints and powders. The more they used the poison, the lighter their skin would become, and the more their tolerance would build, creating a physical addiction they could never quite satisfy. Madame Rachel's clients would return to her year after year, trying to find makeup that could disguise their hair loss, corroding skin, and the animal cage smell that accompanied their inevitable kidney failure. A horrific cycle that often led them to an early grave. But Mary Tucker Borrodale, of course, was blissful in her ignorance. Once she was white enough to glow in the dark, Madame Rachel colored her cheeks and lips with a red tint. And then, finally, the beautician covered Mary in a cloud of heavy perfumes, a kind of finishing touch. Mary walked out the door in a bevy of poisons, more confident than she'd felt in years. It was the last time she'd be acquainted with that feeling. Days later, Mary was back on Bond Street, but this time she slipped into a pool of warm, 
perfumed water at Madame Rachel's Arabian bathhouse. She knew Lord Ranelagh was watching her from behind a wall somewhere through a secret peephole. This was their arrangement. She liked to think he wanted to see her naked, but couldn't trust himself around her. He put a wall between them to preserve her honour. It made her cheeks flush to think a nobleman needed such a buffer. It had been a long time since she'd had such an effect on a man. Afterwards, Mary visited Madame Rachel in the shop, gladly handing over £800 for the next round of her beauty routine. She fully expected an enamelling treatment, but instead, Madame Rachel handed her soaps and a few powders. She assured her that was all that was needed for the time being. Mary took the cosmetics home and dutifully covered herself in powder, hoping it would soak up her wrinkles overnight. She wasn't sure when the prophesied beauty miracle would occur, but she tried to be patient. Yet, as the days dragged into months, she saw little improvement in her appearance. Three months after her first meeting with Lord Ranelagh, she had shelled out £5,300 to Madame Rachel, roughly $603,000 today. And yet, her wrinkles were no softer. Her crow's feet still weaved their way across her eyelids. The skin around her jawline continued to sag. Nothing, it seemed, was working. Finally, Mary had had enough. She wasn't any more beautiful, and she hadn't heard from her beloved Lord Ranelagh in weeks. All that time she had stuffed down her creeping suspicions, but Mary eventually had to accept the truth. Madame Rachel was a fraud. The next day, she marched into the shop at 47A Bond Street, ready to give the snake oil saleswoman a piece of her mind. But as always, Madame Rachel was two steps ahead. When Mary barged through the door, Rachel's eyes lit up. She rushed over to the widow, brandishing a letter. It was from Mary's betrothed. The message praised Mary's unparalleled beauty and formally asked her for her hand in marriage. The widow was speechless her eyes growing wider and wider as she read, until she got to the bottom of the letter, which was signed, William. William? Who was William? What happened to Lord Ranelagh? Madame Rachel explained that it was a pen name. Lord Ranelagh was using it to propose a marriage by proxy. They would wed at separate altars, with proxies playing one another's roles. This way, Ranelagh had explained, Mary wouldn't meet his family until after the wedding was finalised. At that point, there was little they could do to object to her commoner status. Their courtship, he declared, would be conducted by letter from that point forward, for reasons of propriety. Mary could hardly believe it. Pride and joy swelled in her heart, 
deafening the part of her that had just hours before been certain that the whole affair was a fraud. Perhaps she truly thought the letter was legitimate. Perhaps she just wanted to be fooled. After all, it's not hard to understand why a 64-year-old widow, lonely, beauty fading, would want to believe that she could find a happy ending. If Lord Ranella decided her beauty had improved enough for marriage, Madame Rachel's products must have been working after all. Perhaps, Mary thought, she just needed to trust the process. So Madame Rachel, ever the master saleswoman, suggested a number of new products to prepare the bride-to-be for her impending nuptials. Mary nodded and shelled out more money, leaving with a phony powder and an equally bunk love letter clutched to her chest. She cherished that message, and the several that came after it all penned in slightly different handwriting. As sweet Mary Tucker Borrowdale would prove, arsenic and lead couldn't hold a candle to the addictive powers of love. In a moment, Mary is led to financial ruin and brings Rachel down with her. Now back to the story. In late 1865, 65-year-old Mary Tucker Borrowdale left the shop at 47A Bond Street with a love letter detailing a marriage proposal from her beloved clutched tightly in her hands. 51-year-old Madame Rachel had suspected the widow was close to walking away from her scheme. The written proposal was a way to reel her back in. Mary, of course, was overjoyed by the progress in her courtship with Lord Ranella. The whole affair had been a whirlwind, and now she had a wedding to plan. But as Madame Rachel had warned, a royal wedding would be no easy feat, and it was a proxy ceremony. Mary would be responsible for footing the bill. Of course, it made little difference whether she spent her life savings before their marriage. Once she and Lord Ranelagh were wed, she wouldn't need her own money. Mary quickly signed over a hefty sum of assets to Madame Rachel, who set about finding her a wedding dress, jewels to adorn her head, and the perfect pair of shoes. But that was only the beginning. Mary was also expected to pick out a carriage which would carry her from the church to her new estate. It had to be bought outright as the carriage needed to be customized. The Lord's coat of arms would be painted across the side so that all of London knew the coach was carrying Lord Ranelagh's new bride. Mary began liquidating her assets in order to pay the exorbitant preparations, resorting to selling jewellery given to her by her late husband. After all, it would be inappropriate to bring them to her new groom's home. Mary even signed her name to purchase a grand house in London, a second city home for her and Lord Ranelagh to share. No date had been set, but the wedding always felt imminent. 
Madam Rachel was a dogmatic event planner, always rushing purchases for a ceremony that was ever a few weeks away. This constant illusion of an approaching deadline was one of the many ways that Madam Rachel kept Mary on the hook. With no time to consider her options, the widow had little choice but to agree to the beautician's expensive suggestions. According to MIT neuroscientists Anne Grabiel and Alexander Friedman, those who are under a great deal of pressure are more prone to impulsive behavior. This pressure, such as a time constraint or chronic stress, often leads individuals to make high-risk decisions all for the potential of a higher reward. And for Mary Tucker Borrowdale, almost any decision she made was worth securing her future with the very eligible Lord Ranelagh. Over the course of the next year, Mary spent most of her fortune on a celebration she would never enjoy. She gave money to Madame Rachel hand over fist, believing that this matchmaker was assembling a dream wedding on her behalf. Which would explain Mary's surprise when, one chilly London morning in 1866, she was hauled off to the White Cross Street prison. Apparently, she had failed to make good on a few IOUs that had been taken out in her name. Mary was flummoxed. She had never carried debt in her life, let alone one large enough to land her behind bars. The seed of doubt that Mary had swallowed before the proposal once again sprouted. But accepting that she had been swindled also meant accepting that there was no wedding, no Lord Ranelagh, and no return on her enormous investment. She wasn't ready to accept that. Certainly, there had to be some logical explanation. Mary sent word to Madame Rachel, who was quick to come to her aid. She spent the whole day with Mary, assuring her that this would all be resolved soon. Mary begged Rachel to explain the situation to the authorities but she refused. Mary was left with an uneasy feeling. That little seed took root. The imprisoned widow spent several nights at White Cross Prison, waiting for Rachel to sort out the situation. Finally, she returned with a document, which signed over the necessary funds to pay off the debts and release Mary from prison. But Mary refused to sign. She saw Rachel in a new light now. She wasn't a well-meaning beautician. She was a swindler who had bled her of her life savings, every penny she had to her name. Even worse, she dangled a false carrot of happiness in front of the old widow. Be that as it may, Rachel explained, Mary was still sitting in a jail cell for an enormous unpaid debt taken in her name. If she didn't sign over the necessary funds, she'd rot in prison. This Mary couldn't disagree with. Enraged, she signed the document and was subsequently released. She was flat broke, but at least she was a free woman. And, at the very least, she never had to deal with Madame Rachel and her schemes again. 
Which was why Mary Borrowdale was understandably shocked when, a few days later, she was arrested again for more outstanding debt. She owed £15 to a local tailor who, according to Rachel, had made supposed alterations to Mary's wedding dress. What's more likely is that the alterations were on Rachel's own clothes. The mere thought of it made Mary's head spin. How much debt had Rachel incurred in her name? Mary spent another cold, lonely night at Whitecross. She had been hoodwinked by the most prominent salon owner in London, and to admit it would ruin her reputation. But the fact of the matter was that she was out of money. If she didn't recuperate some of her funds, she'd be in the poorhouse. Her reputation was ruined either way. She had nothing to lose. And so, later that year, in 1866, Mary sought the help of a lawyer, Mr. Digley Seymour. She told him the harrowing details of her two-year ordeal at the hands of Madame Rachel, and Mr. Seymour took pity on the old widow. She was a sweet-natured, flitty creature, the kind the con artists loved to target. He felt called to help her out and bring Madame Rachel down in the process. It would take an additional two years to gather the needed evidence, but the whole affair promised to be a courtroom circus. The trial began on September 22, 1868, about four years after 68-year-old Mary had first met Madame Rachel. Rachel was only 54 at the time, but looked much older. Stress didn't agree with her. Mr. Seymour accused the beautician of fraud, backing up his claim with a slew of evidence. But even then, Madame Rachel refused to let up her facade. She contended that Lord Ranelagh was real, but that Mary had invented the entire betrothal story she was now pleading to the court. When Lord Ranelagh was asked about the scandal, he too denied the whole account. In fact, he claimed he'd never met either woman in his entire life. And as nobody had proof otherwise, it was hard to establish which narrative was true. But Mr. Seymour was unperturbed. He had evidence to back up Mary's version of events. He produced letters penned in three different handwritings, all signed William. But instead of admitting to the fraud, Rachel just spun a new story. She told the court that Mary had taken up sex work to pay for her beauty regimen and claimed that this William was one of her clients. Mary and Mr. Seymour were outraged by this implication. Mary was a respectable woman after all, the wife of a late military officer. Before the scandal, she had savings and a sizable pension, which would have been more than enough to live off of, had it not been for Madame Rachel. The judge noted that the letter seemed to be written in several different hands and asked Mary if she had ever thought that was odd. Mary admitted it had occurred to her, but didn't read too much into it at the time. She was too caught up in the affair. It soon became apparent to the court that Mary was a sitting duck. 
not because she was unintelligent, but because she was lonely. And who among us wouldn't go to any length to stave off isolation? Her only crime, heartbreakingly, was hope. After four days in court, a jury came to a consensus. In late September of 1868, Madam Rachel was sentenced to five years at Millbank Prison. Though this may have been more due to Madam Rachel's Jewish heritage than the evidence against her, anti-Semitism was rampant. The fact that Rachel was a wealthy businesswoman accused of swindling her clients only played into those prejudiced stereotypes. After she was hauled away, newspapers ran a smear campaign against her, calling her shop on Bond Street a den of Jewish vipers. But Madame Rachel proved to be less like a snake and more like an unlucky penny. She just kept turning up. She was released from prison almost five years later in 1872 and was immediately back to her old tricks. She discreetly opened another shop and regained many of her previous clients. They were thrilled to hear through the grapevine that she was back in business. And, much as she had done in her prime, Rachel blackmailed these clients, pawned their jewels, and fabricated their credit lines. Apparently, she thought her downfall was just an unfortunate incident with a spinster she'd underestimated. It had nothing to do with these nefarious practices. And so, women fell victim to her time and time again for years. It's impossible to know how many women were robbed of their money and their beauty in an effort to stay young. It's heartbreaking to think of these women, desperate to attract a suitor and retain their husband's interest, slathering their faces with poisons, introducing mercury and lead to the bloodstream, slowly going mad until the husbands they worked so hard to keep had them carted off to the asylum for hysteria. Madame Rachel's shop was full of clients for another six years until she was once again tried and imprisoned in 1878. Madame Rachel sat in prison for two years until her death in 1880 at the age of 66. Her shop was closed, her mercury and arsenic lace products likely destroyed. But such was the social pressure for women to remain flawless that for weeks after Madame Rachel's death, Millbank Prison received letters from her adoring fans, begging for her secrets on how to remain beautiful forever. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Con Artists, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Con Artists on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Con Artist was written by Erin Lan. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs> <laughs>